Hello and welcome to Business Without the podcast brought to you by Ori Clark, perhaps the UK's only multidisciplinary professional firm. That does not mean discipline in the bondage sense of the word, but in the considerably more interesting legal and accountancy sense of the word. Ori Clark is both a legal and an accountancy practice. And one of its partners is my co-host Andy Ori, who is on a mission to bring the exciting business stories that his clients are living to a wider audience, and the means to do that is this podcast. My name is Dominic Frisby, and you are about to hear from my co-host, Andy Ori as he introduces today's guest. Hello, Andy. Hello, Dominic. What an intro. Uh, today, we are joined by Jonathan Wood, good friend, good client. CV stretches from the Afghan deserts with NATO through to the boardrooms at BT via the Royal Navy. He's um, directly intercepted drug smuggling operations in the Caribbean, who hasn't? Specializes in intelligence gathering and communication systems in Afghanistan, again, done that. And now runs C2 Cyber, specializing in innovation, managed services for information insurance and the digital supply chain, which is uh, cybersecurity-esque roles. Uh, How are you doing, Jonathan? And uh, how have you been surviving this uh, wonderful period? Uh, oh, I'm doing very well. Um, C2 is doing very well as well. Um, so everyone working from home is actually not a terrible thing if you're in the business of protecting information where people have uh, recently all decided to work from home for 13 months. Uh, and uh, so there's a lot of change going on. There's a lot of worry. There are a lot of systems being changed by our clients. Uh, and that's actually helping. So in, in a business sense, we've done quite well. It feels a little bit like every week is the same at the moment, doesn't it? But uh, we're we're, um, we're getting there, I think. I have to say, Jonathan, I'm very excited to hear your introduction for about 17 different reasons. Afghanistan, drugs in the Caribbean. But perhaps most of exciting and important of all is the relevance of what you're doing to my SIP portfolio. And that is, <laughs> I've bought a lot of shares a while ago in a in a in an ETF, which is a fund that that tracks cyber security, and it's called iSpy. And I just looked at this a year or two ago, and I thought cyber security it it can only grow. It, it is that right? Is this is this one hot growth sector? It's it's not as sexy as Google or Facebook, but surely it's every bit as important. So it's growing a lot faster than the the fan crowd, the Googles, Facebooks, and so on. Um, especially at the smaller end, because people are addressing niche problems more quickly and they're solving them with more agility. Will it always grow? I don't think anything ever does. It will go through peaks and troughs. Uh, Everyone will go trampling back to work because they'll realize they can't actually grow their businesses uh, whilst they're all sat in their bedrooms. But when they um, uh, when they get there, they'll have different problems. They'll have different things to solve. So um, I, I think it's the technology is always getting more complicated. I, I'm, I don't know which iPhone I'm on now, but it, it seems to get more complicated to use and there's more apps and there's more things for me to do. That means more data to secure. And so there are always going to be companies trying to secure either your email or uh, anything else that you do in the digital world. So tell us, who are you protecting and what are you protecting them from? So uh, our core clients are enterprise uh, scale uh, multinationals mostly, although uh, we're working on uh, lowering the barrier to entry for our clients so that we can work with smaller organizations 
presently, it's enterprises that are uh, in more than one country for both their customers and their own operations. And we're helping them secure their supply chain. So if you imagine you're a retailer and you're using a marketing company to send flyers out every year and you send half a million Christmas flyers out with addresses on, it's important the addresses are accurate and they don't go to the wrong place. Or you're a charity payroll processor. So uh, one of our clients might send millions of pounds in a month to a charity processor and an Excel spreadsheet that says all of these employees want to donate to these different charities. Please chop the money up and send it to the right charities. You need to get that sort of thing correct. And if either incompetence or a lack of training and awareness or a a hostile actor gets in the way of that, inside that chain, either the money will go astray or it'll get paid to the wrong place uh, or people's charities won't get any money. So there are lots of ways that we protect our clients' data uh, when it leaves their own systems and goes to their suppliers. The examples that you're giving there, are they large volume, but sort of in their own way, low, low-ish risk, are they? Is that is that quite common for the sort of problems you're trying to solve? I, and in, on an individual level, they're a low risk if one was wrong, you know? Yeah, I, I agree. But then um, a, a phishing campaign can be quite easily successful. I've actually solved on a, a personal level, just for fellow business owners, where uh, a phishing campaign has succeeded, usually with the finance department, ironically. This is phishing P-H-I-S. That's correct, yes. Although for some people, that's still a leisure activity, as far as I can tell. So just to, to, just tell us what phishing is exactly. Okay, so phishing is where you receive an email. It looks like you're coming from somewhere else. It's got some data in it that uh, makes it relevant to you. Um, you either click on the link or you reply to the password reset that isn't actually genuine. Um, and then they've got your password or they've got your details. And so you can send a phishing campaign out more broadly. There's a, a nuance which is called spear phishing, where you actually research the target and you're looking specifically for an individual and you'll put so much data into the email that's only theirs that they'll think that the email is legitimate. And then you've sent your password to the accounting package that you use or uh, the online bank account or whatever it is to somebody that shouldn't have it. And uh, and then uh, your spending limit will will get hit. I, and so, and that happens quite a lot. Uh, I'm I'm quite surprised at, uh, at that. Um, we we see that quite a lot out out in the real world. Yeah, I got fished. I think pretty much we. This was back in the day. Would have been, I guess, 2014. But I was involved in Bitcoin. I wrote a book about Bitcoin, and I went to this dinner that was just the most expensive, lavish dinner that I've ever been to before or since. And I've been to some lavish mining lunches, I can tell you. And when Bitcoin, you know, Bitcoin was doing really well. Everyone had learned, earned a lot of money. Everyone was sort of somebody quite high profile in the Bitcoin world. And they sent out, you had to click on a link to accept the invitation that you were going to the dinner. And I remember they, for some reason, I remember thinking, why have they done that? They sent out a second link to click on to accept the dinner and that second link was not the people we thought it was sending it out. They'd got hacked. Those at the Bitcoin dinner that accepted the second link had their emails hacked. And anyone who had like archived Bitcoin wallets in their emails had their Bitcoin stolen. And yeah, so I had a lot of my, that happened to me, you know, so I was quite an early Bitcoin adopter, but I had my my hoard robbed back in the day. And, you know, I'd probably be a 
maybe not a gazillionaire, but certainly a 10 millionaire now if, if, if that hadn't happened. At the time, it was only worth a few thousand quid, but we all know how much Bitcoin has gone up by. So, so an enterprise example is um, the finance people in Maersk in Ukraine. So the, the local accountancy firm they were using is how NotPetya got into Maersk and essentially closed down that shipping company for a period of time. There's quite a good Wired article on it. Um, so it's the same technique that they used with your, uh, your Bitcoin. They'd receive an email, click on the link, lost control of their laptop in Kiev, and it went all the way through to Maersk headquarters. And they lost, they didn't know what was in containers. They didn't know what was on each ship, where the ships were. And so one link, you can lose everything on your computer just from one clicking. Well, on it, it's, it can be worse than that. It's not that you've lost access to it, it's that they've gained access to it. And uh, when you're running an enterprise and, and the machines they're targeting have got sensitive information on them, that's not a good thing. So uh, yeah, there, there are quite a few examples. I mean, you feel stupid after you clicked it, but the volume of emails we all deal with, I find it's the same as um, you go and do something, you come back to your computer or something and uh, it says, do you want to save this document or not? And you have this sort of habit of hitting... No, I don't. Why, why, get out of my way, you know? And then like a, a minute later, you're like, oh, fuck, I know what I've just done. And it, it's the same thing in email, isn't it? You get a thousand of them. Eventually, you're just in autopilot and you just click something, you know? Yeah. I've just done a fundraise and we used Adobe Sign for a lot of the shareholders' agreements and things. But it turns out the more money you've got and the higher net worth the individual, the less likely it is for them to click on the link. They're quite savvy. So we got a number of the larger investments coming back with proper signatures scanned in, which is unhelpful if you're trying to use a Adobe sign, incidentally. But, uh, and then you've got to put all of that together. That would be an interesting graph, wouldn't it? Value, you know, how much money have you got versus uh, how how good are you at, like, you know, avoiding a scam effectively, you know? And if the graph suddenly dropped, did they click on the link? Yeah, and are you are you better off using webmail or a desktop email application in terms of safety? Surely webmail is one step further removed from them getting access to your stuff. Yeah, I think I think that's probably true. Uh, it depends on whether you're worried about people having physical access to your device because the email, even at rest, you can encrypt that. So if the machine's not on, it, it's not a problem. Um, and and not all of the browsers are safe. So it depends where you're browsing. And if you're on a browser and somebody's screen scraping the browser or they're watching you from behind, there, there are lots of ways for them to gain access to your account. I use a password manager, but now I use a not Google, Chrome, whatever it is, Chrome or Google, I'm not even sure, keeps a lot of my old passwords. And I just looked at it the other day and it, was, it said, told me that something like 200 of my password accounts have been compromised and are now available on the dark net. Is everyone getting messages like this? Because I was just using one generic password that I was using for everything. That, <laughs> so, so that's probably where the challenge starts. And uh, so actually it's 200 accounts compromised by you losing one password. In that case, yeah, something like that. Should I go through all those? Okay, even these are websites I last visited in, you know, nineteen seventy three, before the internet even existed. Yeah, before ARPANET. So that was that was pretty crafty. No, so there is a there's a package called Chrome Pass that will steal all of the passwords out of the back of Chrome. So um, that that's quite easy. You can download that yourself if you ever lose all your passwords in Chrome. So I I, I would keep them in a proper password manager. Um, Chrome has got a lot better. They're always finding new malware in those things and turning them off. But now they've been compromised. Should I go into all those accounts and just close them down or 
or change the uh, password. Well, or change the password. Um, and while you're changing the password, use a password manager that helps you come up with a hard password and keeps it for you. And it'll synchronize it between all your devices, so you don't need to yeah, know. Yeah, and that, that's going to take me a day to go through all those old accounts that have been. Sounds hacked. like a, a good day spent. Oh, really? You'd recommend doing it? Do you never use them? No. Well, don't you know, bother it's things then. like my password for, you know, EasyJet or something. Yeah, or um, Napster, which nobody yeah, uses exactly. now. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so if you don't use Napster anymore and your credit card number's changed since last you used it with any of these accounts, I wouldn't worry about it. It's just your digital exhaust. But from everything that you're currently using, uh, get get a bit better than what you've just described would be my suggestion. Someone's currently getting into EasyJet for Dominic and booking yeah. booking flights to nowhere. <laughs> booking flights to Magaluf. Uh, my producer has asked me to ask you this, Jonathan. Which password manager do you recommend? Do you have one you recommend? Blimey. Uh, I, I know which one we use in C2, which is LastPass, and it works well. Um, and it works on every device that I've managed to buy so far. This podcast sponsored by LastPass. Yeah. Other password managers are available. (laughs) (laughs) So your business is in the business of of helping people look, particularly at these supply chains, as you say, you know, someone may think, oh, you know, I'm I'm all right, but they're they're handing customer data over to, you know, suppliers who are doing stuff with it. But you you then you what the technological side of this that you apply, Cobra or, or whatever, that's that's you what trying to automate these checks, as it were. Yeah, so our platform um, does a lot of open source intelligence. So it looks for breaches. It looks for things that shouldn't be on the internet. It it looks for the security of the client uh, and suppliers, web-facing infrastructure, email, because there are ways to to prevent phishing, which a lot of UK government now insist on for companies here, actually. Um, So we check for all of that in an automated way. And then Cobra's got three legs to the stool, so that's one of them. And then we also ask them, a bunch of questions about the inside of their organization, but in a way that they seem to quite enjoy because we've managed to make the answers funny. And and then also looking at the policies and evidences that they use internally. So back to the start of this pandemic stuff, uh, business continuity plans were found to be wanting in quite a lot of places because nobody had a laptop, they all had desktops, how do they work from home? All, all of that stuff came out of the woodwork. And so we checked for all of that. And then we score our um, suppliers or the suppliers of our client uh, and we monitor for change. So uh, for the period of the contract, we keep that on watch and we just um, we just keep observing it. So how many people working for you? Uh, so we've doubled the number of people in the last year. So 2020 for me um, was actually about how do you interview and how do you integrate and how do you bring people in who didn't used to work in CG Cyber and now work there. That's actually been a challenge. Um, I think they've just they've been just as keen to rise to the challenge as I was. But remotely interviewing somebody that you can't have a coffee with and you can't meet and so on is a bit odd. Um, it, it's a bit strange. And people's examples of how that should be fine don't make much sense. You know, astronauts spend all their time um, out in space, sure, but they spend 15 years training together and basically living in the same house before they get in the plane. So um, so we, I don't think we've done much of this. And I think uh, I was talking earlier today with somebody about how you can probably manage a team 
in BAU with the same aims and the same structure and the same legacy and so on quite successfully remotely because you all know each other and there's a set of rules, a set of processes. Larger enterprises are better. In um, SMEs like mine, a lot of the policies, we're making them up as we realize we haven't got them. I'm sure no other SME has that problem, but we're just uh, making these things up when we need them. And so we've got the organization piece, but doubling the size of an organization is going to cause some tensions with the staff that were there before and and the ones joining. Uh, And so I think you can probably manage a team uh, through a pandemic, but creating one and leading it from a group of individuals to a high-performing team, I think you will need to get in a room. So I don't know whether that's overly traditional or not. I don't really care, actually. My opinion is you get a whiteboard and everyone sits down and you were six people that didn't know each other on day one. And at the end of it, you know a little bit about each other and you go out for a drink. But you can't do that in a pandemic. So, So the real trouble for me has been making the team bigger and growing the organization. And I've got to do a lot more of that this year. So I'm hoping that we can get everyone together because I've got another 15 to 20 people to hire in 2021. So I've got to do it in nine months now. Yeah, congratulations on, on the raise, mate. You've done it. You've, no, you've, you've done very, I mean, honestly, most of my clients say, right, I'm going to raise some money. Don't worry, I'm going to get it done in two months. And I'm like, right, okay, well, it might take you slightly longer than that. <laughs> um, but you, you, you've, ma- you've managed to relatively smash it. Were your parents in the military, Jonathan, or? no. No, 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 I chose that. But uh, that, so that was mostly because I wanted to do something bigger than just make money. I was making more money before I joined the Navy. And then I joined up because I, I wanted to be an engineer and, um, and I wanted to go and do interesting things rather than just work in an office. Uh, I discovered actually that as an engineering officer in the military, you often end up in an office. It just, <laughs> it's just bolted to the deck. But, um, but I, uh, I, I still got to go to some places. I did some fun things. It was great. I wouldn't trade that bit for anything. So when you, when you say engineer, you mean a computer engineer? I was a weapons engineer. So anything that made the ship... A warship is uh, the the weapons engineers in the UK. Um, anything that makes the ship a ship belongs to the marine engineers. So you'd be in charge of building and maintaining the torpedoes and that kind of yeah, thing? Yeah, missiles, guns, uh, communications, sensors, bits of uh, submersible kit, yeah. What are your favourite memories of the military? You obviously did a lot of different stuff there. Were you, what, deputy chief of the... NCSA Operations Center in NATO. That's a hell of a hell of a mouthful for a, for your business yeah, but card. They love they love a title. Um, so so basically that meant I just made the phones work for um, <laughs> what was then um, a, a new ops room in in Belgium. So um, about when I got there, all of the combined NATO forces uh, were operating all their own uh, kits, IT and phones and satellite comms and stuff, um, and all of that. So the Brits were operating a system that was separate to the Americans and the Italians and the Spanish, the French, whatever. And so, and and everyone realized they were also paying loads of money into NATO. So very quickly, they threw it all at NATO and said, you run it. Um, and, and NATO wasn't at that point, it didn't have all the manpower. So I got pulled out of the job I was doing initially over there and and created that. But that was fun too. I enjoyed that. That was good. I spent three years in in Belgium um, working for NATO, and that was really good fun. I had a Mini Cooper S, and 
Um, everyone else in the car park had bought these enormous tax-free BMWs because they're like Brits abroad and they get tax-free car. And they bought these enormous great rear-wheel drive cars. Snows a lot in Belgium. Not ideal in a rear-wheel drive car. So the only person that used to be able to get into the office, uh, yeah, shocker, uh, was me in my little mini. <laughs> One of the things we talked about before the show was this idea of comparables between the disciplines working in the Navy and NATO to the white-collar world. And you wanted to talk about that a little bit. Why don't we explore that? Um yeah, so, well, the, um, and not just the white collar, uh, but I've worked with field forces in technology in the UK. And uh, so BT and OpenReach does a phenomenal job with retiring service people, so the veteran community, in um, bringing through jobs for them. They, they do really well there, um, literally thousands. And I think one of the challenges um, is in the Navy, the um, or any, any uniformed uh, organisation, everyone's rowing the boat in the same direction because quite literally, if the boat sinks, you all get to go with it. Whereas in the private sector, I've noticed that everyone's rowing their own boat most of the time. And so the trick is to make all the boats go in the same direction. They're all rowing their own boat and they're all looking at their own pension numbers and all this sort of stuff. And that's not to deride the private sector. It's just the... in there, people are keeping score using money. We don't keep score using money in the military because everybody's paid the same. So there are some differences. But I found using what I learned in the Navy in general really useful in in the private sector. So you can build teams and, and you can get everyone to work in the uh, towards the same common sort of aims but you do have to align all those incentives and initiatives i've been working with andy on some of them for for my team and and you've got to get all that stuff lined up so they all get in the boat and row it in the same direction yeah it's funny when when you work i was just talking to my other half about this last night and let's say you're working on a tv project on a tv program and you know i'd be the one of the writers maybe the performer and then you go to the sound man. All the sound man cares about is that the sound is good. All the producer cares about is that it runs on time, the programme runs on time, it doesn't go over budget. All the comedian cares about is that it's as funny as possible. All the writer cares about is that his jokes get used and not the other writer's jokes. You know, all the lighting man cares about is the lighting. Now, and it's amazing how the different disciplines within, but ultimately they're all making a TV program and it's better for all of them, the more successful the TV program is. But it's amazing how all those different interests, a lot of the time people really don't care about beyond the lights or the sound or the jokes, you know. Mm. Yeah, I've seen a lot of that in the big corporate world. Well, that aligns with my objective that I wrote myself last week and so I'll do that even if it's to the detriment of the overall aim or somebody else's. Uh, and that's a bit too common, I think. Be interesting to see how this pandemic and everybody hiding under the bed worrying about stuff will um, will affect it, actually. I wonder what will happen when everyone comes back to work. I didn't know BT Openreach have got a pretty... They usually get slagged off by everyone for, like, messing up. But they, they are helping veterans... It's such an important subject and, and there isn't much support really, but you, what BT are particularly good at it. I mean, do you get involved in as well or? So uh, from our side, I think we, we've hired nine veterans since I started this project. Um, not all of them are still with us, but we've got six still. 
Uh, I think that includes me, so five more. And I, I'm actually meeting some more later tonight from an organization called Tech Vets, which is technical people from the veterans community. Uh, and so uh, we're, because we've got these 15 vacancies, so I, I'm, I'm looking at that. They don't answer to all the jobs that we've got, but but quite a few. Open reach is really good because um, the, the field force piece that the military community is already based all over the UK. So it isn't a Southeast or London centric machine. And, and so they can use that for local stuff. Um, and they're used to working in conditions where you, you might not put up with it all the time. If it's, you know, you're up a telegraph pole and it's raining or it's cold or whatever. They do just tend to keep going and crack on with the job until it's done. Are we bad in this country about helping vets? Um, I, I don't think so. I think that there's a lot of charity. So we work with a number of the charities that have been stood up around uh, Iraq too. And so Help for Heroes at the in Iraq too, um, uh, the Afghanistan campaign. Um, so Help for Heroes was only started to fund a swimming pool at Headley Court, the rehab center, and it just grew arms and legs. They actually had to change their charity mandate so they could spend the money after they'd built the pool. Um, and people just kept shoveling money in to Help for Heroes and they couldn't, they weren't actually allowed to spend it at the time. So so that went well, but that wasn't the MOD. Um, so, so I think it, it's it's important to be clear as to whether this is public generosity or the organisation that sent them into harm's way. The, the latter have improved, but I don't think they're as good as they could be. The gap is picked up by the charities, particularly on the employment side. So I went through all the process when I left and, and joined BT, as it was, and that, that process had some good bits, but it had a lot more bits where I was left on my own. I have no idea what I was doing, which is why we now try to help uh, some of the charities through uh, through the C2 piece um, and, and hiring people. Sometimes they just want to bounce ideas about other jobs off you. So I also do some mentoring of people that are leaving the services and they just want to talk about, I found this job at one of the big four. Do you think I should do it? And that's a fairly easy answer, obviously. But, uh, but there are lots of people asking questions about, should I move here? Should I move there? Mm. Okay. Jonathan, it's been a real, real pleasure talking to you. And we have sort of two generic questions that we finish the show with. But before we come to them, I just want to come back to the subject that we open the show, which, with is, which is internet security and, and what your business does. And ask you this, what is the most common mistake that companies make in terms of their internet security? Um, so where a company is using one of two predominant systems, um, 365, the Microsoft version, or Google Suite, there's a phenomenal amount of stuff you can do in there to make your data safe. Where they get it wrong is they hand out the IT and they don't enforce things like um, 2FA, you mentioned earlier, two-factor authentication. That's very easy to turn on. And as the administrators, it makes it ever so slightly less convenient for everyone using it, but it makes your data safe. Um, and then management of devices, uh, so um, uh, mobile data management and mobile device management. There are products out there. They're very straightforward. You can also do that in Microsoft and Google. Um, I don't know why I'm plugging those two, Behemoth, but they, um, they, they do a good job of securing devices. So if you lose your iPhone on the train or your intern loses the company iPad, you can nuke it from the office. And there's nothing on it. It's just ballast. So... Uh, all of that stuff is possible. Very few companies that we encounter 
they talk a good game. Oh, we've bought this expensive security license from Microsoft. When you actually look at it, they haven't turned it on. So you need to actually use these features to make it safe. And then training and awareness. The final bit is, do the people know it's there? Do they know they can use it? Do they know if they lose their post- personal phone, you can ring someone at work and they'll nuke it for you? You may have lost your phone, but you're never going to get that back. What you are going to do is get rid of your photos from everything else from wherever you lost it. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's, I'm on an ongoing thing. Let me ask you another question. You know, World War I was fought on the Western Front and it was a physical battle where you could see the enemy and you went arm to arm. World War II was a little bit more detached. It was bombs and missiles and nuclear bombs and stuff like that. Is, is, is the next war being fought on the digital front? Yes, and it's probably ongoing well. It's ongoing now. And it's all fought in that grey zone that they've started fashionably talking about. Yeah, yeah, there's lots of things. So an example, the water treatment plant in Florida that was hacked, so to speak, in December, um, or it might have been January, they kind of left the door open. So they have TeamViewer, which is about remotely controlling a different computer, and they didn't have a password on it. And the computer being remotely controlled was deciding what levels of chemicals to put in the water to treat it for bugs and uh, and chlorine and everything else. And they jacked all the levels right up when they hacked in. But that that's not a hack. That's That's like saying that someone broke into your house when you left your front door open. They might have been coming in to see if you're okay. So they might be trespassing, but they didn't break in. And so we need to make it harder for these people. And that stuff's happening all over the place. Right. Um, Jonathan, last two questions. What are you most excited about for the future of your business? Uh, Well, for C2, um, we've just closed this race. So I'm going to We've got to hire a bunch of people. We've got adverts out at the moment. We've interviewed some people. Um, We're we're interviewing more. It's a really exciting time. uh, It's the most exciting it's been for a while. We did do the fundraise quite quickly. That was quite tense. That wasn't exciting. And now now we're we're trying to uh, grow the business as fast as we can, despite the pandemic. So that's the most exciting thing at the moment. We're trying to decide where to put all these bodies as well, because the office point, we don't really know whether we're going to have desks or just collaboration spaces or bean bags. I don't know. With all the, with all these people, you might be able to have a proper sun at summer party and take over a small Italian restaurant and all to yourselves. That would be fun. There, there are a couple in London that are still open, I think I saw. One of the singers was using it. Wasn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah. I saw that. Yeah. Final question. If there was one thing in the world you could change over the next five years, except for COVID, what would it be? I think the thing I'd like to change, if I can be UK specific and a bit cheeky, um, we're trying to encourage people out of their cars, but we make it phenomenally difficult to get into London by train. And when you get there at the moment, there are no tubes. So I've been going in for bits and pieces of work I can't do from home. Commuting by train is very difficult and it costs me £80 a day for a ticket. So it's a it's a big number. And... 80 quid a day. That's what it costs you. Where do you commute from? Um, so between Ashford and Canterbury. Not that far though, is it? You're kidding. You just go from Ashford to Canterbury and that... Oh, you're between Ash. So by the time you've driven to Ashford, parked your car, got the train, got the tube, it costs you 80 quid. Yeah, so 79 quid a day um, return uh, from here. That's fucking On insane. High Speed 1 via Ashford. So you get on Ashford, you get on High Speed 1, which uses the Eurostar line. It's really fast. But... But it's 80 pounds. It's not 80 pounds fast. 
Well, uh, you you don't get breakfast on the train served from a trolley, right? Um, <laughs> it's a commuter train, and it's usually standing room only, and it's seventy nine quid. So I I think if That's you're going to try and encourage people not to drive, um, and my second bugbear about that whole subject, so public transport, get me to London, and then there's nowhere for me to keep my bike, and if anyone can find me a Santander cycle or a Boris bike, when the commuter trains come into St Pancras and King's Cross, there are none. They've all gone. Everyone's pedaled them off to somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. There's such a fight for the last one. Have you been in one of those yeah, there, when there you're is, running towards the last that. one and you're like, fuck you, you know? Yeah, and the other guy's always going to be bigger than me, so I'm never going to win. And 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 so why can't we have, like, instead of a multi-storey car park every 15 yards in London, can we have some secure bike versions instead and I can keep a bike in London? Well, I could plug my client VeloHawk if you want to look them up, but they make a, a, an amazing carbon fibre box. You put a bike in and they're suddenly very, very popular. Right. Jonathan, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. If people want to find out more about your company and, and what you do, how do they go about doing that? Uh, so I've got a website and, uh, and, and they can get hold of me. C2Cyber.com, very straightforward. Uh, everything's on there. Great stuff. Well, it's been a real pleasure talking to you and Andy and I are both, and our producer D, we are all going to pull up our security socks as a result of talking to you. Very good. And we'll be back with another show very soon. In the meantime, stick around for our special outtakes, where you'll hear Jonathan tell us more about his adventures in the Royal Navy, intercepting South American drug smugglers. Tell me about you, the, these weapons, the weapon you know, being directly intercepting drug smuggling operations then. Were you pointing torpedoes at drugs or? No, I was the boarding officer. So when uh, we detected a, a boat coming out of usually South America laden with drugs, and actually the pictures of me are on the mod internet site on uh, in um, 2005. is it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, it's the biggest cocaine haul to that point. So it's been exceeded since, but it was the biggest one at that point. And uh, uh, yeah, we we um, we captured a, a go fasty speedboat full of drugs, and um, uh, yeah, gave it to the Americans like like usual. I mean, did you chance upon this boat? Did you have intel? Uh, so, so we had intelligence that said that the boat had just left, and uh, you know, we're, uh, where where had it left? Um, it, it had left the uh, north uh, northeast coast of South America, and so you tracked it down. Yeah, so. We've got a helicopter. There's usually more than one ship in the NATO standing force Atlantic. So helicopters, a few other bits and pieces. The boat's quite obvious because it's doing about 60 knots when it shouldn't be, and it's going in a straight line, which nobody else ever does. So you're usually curving around the coast or you've forgotten something, you've turned around, doing 60 knots across the open Caribbean Sea up towards wherever they're going to transship it is uh, quite easy to spot. So surely you people would take more roundabout. Yeah, yeah. Routes take then. your time, lads. Like, if you're listening, so you know, since slow then down. they've started building submarines and submersibles. I don't know if you saw the news, but about two, three months ago, uh, a submersible that had set off from South America with like 60 tons of cocaine on board showed up in Spain. Uh, which You're means kidding. it crossed the Atlantic underwater, which is, for a drug dealer, quite cool. I'd say. How far can you go in a submarine before you need to come up? 
Uh, well, these are submersibles, so they'd have a snorkel, so they'd have air, so there'd be something looking like a gutter tube, um, a downpipe on a gutter sticking out of the water. Um, they're not, they've not started building full sub- submarines. Uh, okay. Um, they're, they're like very low down in the water ships, basically. So, And would there be people in the ship or would yeah, there be remote yeah, control? Yeah. No, no, driving. Yeah. Crikey. The, the people are... Generally, trying to do to trying to do lines while it while it jumped around, you know. <laughs> I don't think they don't usually do their own product because when it's in the boat, it's like ninety seven percent pure. So if you did any that was actually in transport, it'd just kill you. Yeah, right. Because it's not being cut with something. And where would that have been taken to? Cadiz or something? So it was transshipped on a Caribbean island, and then it gets taken up to North America in smaller packet. Most of it goes through Trinidad and Jamaica, which is why in the, uh, as my wife comes from there. And Glad get, you said it. Yeah, <laughs> because that's why it's very sad, Trinidad's history, because basically as the cocaine kicked off in the 80s, it, it just, it, Trinidad and Jamaica descended. Before then, they were really dealing with weed and it was all a bit, you know, chilled out and happy. More but chilled when, out. When yeah. the cocaine started flowing through, it carries enough money, plus they are doing it, and it just creates that sort of crazy violence with, you know, um, and it's mm, really bad at the moment. Moment in Trinidad, and actually, I saw Jamaica's having a terrible state too. I um, mean, it's sad; it flows through. And then the other route, yeah, to Spain. Most of it used to go historically. I don't know if it still does go to Spain because there's a very funny, funny, famous story about um, the. Uh, I think he's the head of Santander Bank. This guy was, and uh, a plane happened to crash in his garden full of cocaine, and he knew nothing about it. It was all terribly suspect, sort of thing. But yeah, the sort of main routes through there. Well, you think they'd put the wrong address in the sat-nav. It's like, that's the buyer, not the airport. Yeah, okay. <laughs> something like that. 